Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm delighted and privileged to welcome a very, very accomplished professional from the world of healthcare, Tanya Nayak Kamphouse from Washington, D.C., USA. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashutosh. Uh, Tanya is the director for Met Metabolic Disorders uh, and uh, Patient Engagement at the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, also referred to as FNIH. So Tanya, uh, tell me a little bit about your own journey uh, and what uh, took you to FNIH. So Ashutosh, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a great privilege for me to be here and, and share uh, my journey and, and what we do here at the Foundation. So, um, you know, I grew up in Delhi uh, as a, and, and trained as a scientist and did some, and was also an artist and then came like many did uh, several years ago for a PhD program to the United States, not knowing it will become home. Hmm. Um, we continued here with the, my, after I finished my PhD, I went on to do postdoc, which is the typical path uh, for career development in, in research. And then somewhere sort of halfway through in my postdoctoral career, I realized that while research was extremely exciting and continues to excite me to this day, really what, um, you know, was driving me to want to, be, to make a difference in the world hmm. was, to, was to find a way to, to communicate or translate the research findings into mm -hmm. something that was actionable for people, right, mm -hmm. that could be developed into treatments mm -hmm. or knowledge or something. And I felt uh, at that time that um, while there were smart things I was learning by going to conferences and in my own lab, that I didn't really see a way that this was going to get anywhere mm -hmm. to make a difference uh, to the people who are looking to mm -hmm. healthcare professionals for for finding the next therapies uh, for for diseases and, and different conditions. Mm -hmm. So that prompted my exit from active research. Mm -hmm. um, and I took up a job at uh, a disease nonprofit uh, out to direct collaborative research. Mm -hmm. And as a fresh, you know, sort of green researcher at that time, um, it was, you know, you know, I look back and think about all the wonderful people who mentored me to, to learn how, you know, translational research work. You know, how do we take a wonderful finding, a mm -hmm. new development, and, and what paths and hurdles it needs to jump through mm. to see the light of day as any kind of a treatment. So that was a wonderful learning ground, but for the last, you know, since, since then, haven't looked back for the past um, 10, 15 years. This is what I've been doing, and it still gets me up every day, you know, vexing problems that need solving. That's, that's my juice. Amazing, amazing. And you've clearly got two roles. So let's talk about your first role, which is to which is where you're involved in developing complex healthcare partnerships in metabolic diseases. So for my viewers and listeners, help me understand what is the meaning of a metabolic disease? For sure. So, uh, you know, think of metabolic disease as, you know, your internal organs, right? Mm -hmm. Your heart, your liver, your kidney, stomach, all of these things that are very important to your daily functioning um, but sometimes uh, things can happen that your individual organ that has a assigned function uh, is not working so well right mm -hmm. the, the function goes goes all right so that so um, 
you know, it can happen for two or three, there are many reasons this can mm -hmm. happen and they could be specific to that organ, mm -hmm. but there are systemic reasons that this happens and the biggest culprit there are diabetes and obesity, which are mm. two diseases that are exceedingly prevalent all over the world, right? Correct. So, um, so when you have, and you've lived with diabetes for a while, or you have an, you're gaining weight over time, um, all of these organ functions are impacted. Mm -hmm. And the diseases that result from that are called metabolic diseases. Mm, fascinating. Something new that I've learned from you today. <laughs> and uh, Tani, what are some of the most pressing challenges faced by healthcare systems in managing metabolic diseases? So, you know, it's, a, it's a great question. I think so, uh, you know, I'll start out by saying that these are probably diseases that impact more people than mm. any other disease, the group of diseases, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's it's prevalent all over the world. Uh, the incidence rates are rising alarmingly in adults and in children now. Mm -hmm. We're seeing diabetes and obesity rise alarmingly Correct. in children. So when you think about that, and each disease is caused by multiple factors, mm. right? So you already have a complex disease that, is, that has many causalities, right. many reasons it happens. But now you're also looking at the disease, a disease that's happening in many types of people. Mm -hmm. So people living in different countries, they have different genetics, they have different socioeconomic uh, challenges, they have the different regulatory challenges, mm -hmm. they have uh, different access challenges. And so, um, so the, the problem is complex in the, in the start and a complex in the end, right? Mm -hmm. It's complex to find a way to, to find solutions it's very complex also to deliver those solutions. So this is, I think, what makes these diseases so intractable sometimes, because mm. we have some treatments for diabetes and we have mm. some treatments for obesity. In fact, just you know, last week, uh, a blockbuster new treatment has been announced for which will you know decrease obesity in sort of an easy to take yeah. medication form mm -hmm. formulation. So lots of wonderful time for medicine in this space. But we are still struggling with, you know, how those medicines impact a diverse set of people who mm. live in different uh, environments. Correct. And whether Correct. they will have access, both, you know, physical access, as well as monetary access, mm. as well as regulatory access to those medicines. So this is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a human problem yeah. uh, in more ways than one. You know, you, you're so right. I mean, I'm a, I'm a member of this organization called the Young Presidents Organization. And in the last two months, it's been a buzz with this particular pro product, which is, can help to uh, reduce uh, weight, as they say. The, nobody talks of uh, handling obesity, but they say it's a great way to lose weight. And I said, that's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> but, but moving on, how do you uh, identify and prioritize potential partnerships when you're looking at uh, some of these diseases and uh, maybe with a specific focus on maternal health? So, you know, uh, maternal health doesn't entirely fall within metabolic diseases, but we do deal with lots of metabolic problems in women's and maternal health, right? right. Um, so uh, one of the ways, uh, so I'll answer your first question and then yeah. give an example maybe. So, uh, you know, uh, at the foundation, we are a nonprofit and mm -hmm. uh, we work closely with NIH, which is our the largest funding organization, I think, in the world at this point. Uh, and it's run by U.S. government, as well as the food and drug uh, uh, you know, agency, as well as um, 
all uh, private sector companies, small, large, disease advocacy groups, etc. Mm. And ideas come from everywhere. I'm a strong believer in encouraging all good ideas. And so people will often reach out to us and say, hey, I'm working on this cool new product or I have this cool new idea. And if it fits the remit of having big potential, mm. we will consider it. And the way we consider it is we bring that idea into, we have several committees that mm. evaluate partnership opportunities. Mm. Say, you know, is this something that makes sense? Is, could mm. this be the next, next, you know, way to break whatever is ailing us in moving mm. forward, you know, whatever is mm. stagnating us? Correct. Um, and so, and this wise group of people are from all walks of life. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're experienced stakeholders from industry and academia and government. Mm -hmm. um, and we, this is how we form a pro program. And we have only two, you know, rules really to build a pro partnership. Mm -hmm. The first is it has to be acceptable and a good idea that everybody across sector, private mm -hmm. and public sector, want to prioritize for development. That's mm -hmm. the first. And the second is, that whatever we build together, we want to be able to maximize its distribution mm. so that knowledge should be freely shared with the world. So if something is you know, specifically designed to promote a product mm. or specifically designed that will generate IP, we typically don't work on those things. We mm. work on things that could be, you know, I think the legal term is pre-competitive, mm. uh, where you can, you can do something that will you can share broadly and mm -hmm. it still helps individual companies build their uh, IP and their products, mm -hmm. but that, that knowledge in itself is free of such restrictions. Mm -hmm. So once we are able to, um, you know, if, if things meet those two criteria, you know, mm -hmm. we are happy to work on it. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And uh, Tanya, are there any ethical considerations when you're looking at some of these, uh, you know, interesting opportunities that, could be good for mankind or humankind? Yeah, so, um, you know, there are always ethical considerations. And uh, and in fact, working in healthcare, that is something that we take extremely seriously. Um, uh, and I would say at this point in time, our biggest um, ethical consideration for me and, and for many is just diversity, equity, inclusion, and mm -hmm. access, right? So mm -hmm. DEIA has been used extensively especially in the last couple of years we've seen Correct. this term being used a lot and i think mm -hmm. it's 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 uh it's very important for for many reasons and, and most reasons i don't need to state but in the context of what we are doing you know there have been studies on diabetes there have been studies on obesity for many years mm -hmm. and so there is a healthy body of data that mm -hmm. exists Right. And so the push and pull typically in the healthcare context tends to be, can we use the existing body of data mm. to derive new knowledge? Mm. And that uh, that's fast and it, you know, it addresses urgency to get new treatments and it's great. But then the, 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 the flip side of that is those data are primarily generated in, from white individuals. Mm -hmm. And so you are continuing to solve the problem but you may not be taking into account hmm. a population that is increasingly diverse and has different uh, genetic and uh, you know environmental considerations. Hmm. Um, and so, but generating that data is going to take a little time because we don't hmm. have a extensive body of data already generated Correct. or access to. Correct. So this is a, a primary ethical uh, push and pull that I think we find with every project. You know, hmm. do we do the next quick quick is 
quick as mm. relative. Mm. Yeah. But the next immediate thing, uh, for good ethical reasons, because we need new therapies faster, people are mm. dying. Or do we double down and say, you know, we really need to make this as broad, mm-hmm. increase the complexity, but make it as broad as possible. So more treatments that we come up with, we have greater confidence. It will mm. help everybody. So mm. at the end of the day, we do both. Right, we 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 do some quick wins. We use that lesson to apply to a broader population, and mm. that's sort of uh, those are the typical ethical fascinating. Uh, fascinating. So, one more question relating to partnerships, and then we'll move to the other segment. Yeah. Um, how do you address disparities in access to care and treatment for patients, particularly in underserved communities? You know, um, I have to say that I don't live in that space entirely of mm-hmm. access. We are much further upstream, if you will. You know, okay. we are involved in thinking about how to involve different populations in mm-hmm. clinical research. Okay. Um, but I will tell you that um, th- there have been some phenomenal discoveries and new drugs have come to market in the, mm-hmm. in the last 10 or so years, which we're still not seeing as much uptick or access in, in, in different underserved or minoritized populations. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a big, and I think a, <laughs> respectfully a much more difficult area than, than what I'm working on, Correct. is how Correct. do you make even access happen? Um, it's a hotly debated topic in the United States and world mm-hmm. over. Um, uh, and, and I think it's an area that the foundation hopes to increasingly play a role in. Mm-hmm. Also with our patient engagement, work because one of the things that is uh, in the way of access is uh, mistrust or distrust Mm -hmm. of science you Mm -hmm. know and and is this really good is it really Mm going to help me Mm -hmm. Um, and and one of the ways that we are trying to solve for that is uh, is to start to engage different communities Mm -hmm. Uh, some of them are patients some of them are supporters of patients but different Mm -hmm. communities in designing how we work with um uh how we how we work on developing new treatments what mm. is going to make the most sense for you right. and i think if we if we at least start to do that there will be more visibility and more uh, more ability for people to know what is available mm. and then and then there, are, there it's, a, it's a little bit easier to fight for access well said thank you so tani let, let's uh, move to the other role that you have which is yeah you know, you're the leader of the foundation's initiative in engaging patient voices. And it's often been said, you know, you, of course, in a foundation, but even in hospitals, most patients say we don't have a voice. So I just really loved this particular aspect of what you're doing. But can you provide an overview and objective of the FNIH initiative to engage patient voices? Sure. No, I think um, it is, it is, uh... You know, it's uh, it seems obvious. You know, when you say that you are even as a product developer, you have to make it, you know, as much of a fit for the user as you mm-hmm. can. And to that end, the uptake of a, a new medicine or a new, uh, you know, therapy or treatment, whatever you have, mm-hmm. is much better if the person who is going to use it and going to benefit from it Hmm. can talk to you about what they need, right? Hmm. And so from every perspective, I think it seems pretty straightforward, but actually it is not because Mm -hmm. there is is complexity. This is a very big and complex 
systems with lots of stakeholder people who do development, early research, development, translational research. There's several stages of that, clinical mm-hmm. studies, and then so patients almost unfortunately come at the end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, like, okay, we made this. Do you like it? Correct. And and then that may be a point where they can say, you know, it would have been good if you also had this, and that doesn't mm-hmm. really. It's not as effective. Correct. So one of the things that we are doing as we are, you know, more in the translational translational space at the foundation, we are starting to bring in those patient voices mm. more um, meaningfully. I think is the, is the word I like to use. More meaningfully, because there are, you know, you can do things which are which are activities that. Uh, you can you can get them to you can get a patient to say you know is this a good idea or not a good idea and they mm. can tell you based on their life, lived experience or based on whatever knowledge they have about Correct. the science Correct. or both uh, but oftentimes you probably need more than one voice again mm-hmm. we talked about how there are different people uh, who have diseases and they all have different experiences so we mm-hmm. do need more than one a diversity of patient voices. Correct. Uh, we need to measure how we are in both incorporating those th- that feedback and how we are um, using it to, you know, design our studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what uh, this sort of initiative is about. That we are right. while we are do- we have been doing it, you know, mm-hmm. for our project. That we want to do it in a more measurable way mm-hmm. uh, and and as early in the process as, as we can. And mm. that, that involves, you know, some training, some some discussions and identification of different types of patient mm. uh, groups and communities that can support. Mm. Um, and, and do you have <clears throat> any kind of uh, um, data to say that, you know, when patients get involved, acceptance of certain types of treatments is, is better? Oh, there is a lot of data on this. It's not my data, but there no, is, I in mean, fact, lots of, yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of data on it uh, in the field, lots that I, and I'm happy to send you some links, but there's oh. a lot of data that says, you know, if you involve patients early on in the study design, you can, you can really influence uh, a few things, right? Um, uh, so the, one of the biggest challenges in the running clinical studies, and, uh, and I would say a huge time and money sink mm-hmm. uh, for people who are running the studies, are recruitment and retention. So right. are you able to recruit people to your study? And are you, mm-hmm. able, to, are you able to retain them through the length of the study? It's, it tends to be the biggest, you know, a very complex piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so the first thing is, if you are involving patients in your study design, mm. it is much more likely that you will be able to recruit and retain patients mm. in that study. So that mm. is one immediate benefit, right, mm. without having a, a big benefit at the end. Right. But also, when patients who are educated about clinical studies are able to tell you, you know, this type of what we call patient-reported outcomes or PROs mm-hmm. are important for me, you know, I, you know, very famously, I was working with this group and, you know, uh, when you design a study, you see uh, what is a survival or is a patient able to survive, you know, six months or more mm. uh, on this treatment. If you ask a patient, it will be good Absolutely. for them they like yeah. to survive, but what they would really like is to be able to walk up and down the stairs mm. without losing their breath or, you know, be able to go to the grocery store mm. independently able to drive and those are some some uh, uh, you know activities of daily living 
that we can capture mm. uh, and we should be capturing that qualitative, mm. but they can be captured and they're much more meaningful to our patients. And mm. if, you know, I will tell you from my perspective, if somebody told me, you know, you have this condition, but if you took this medicine, you would have, you would be able to live independently, comfortably for, you know, uh, and that's definitely something we mm. can tell you from the study. I'm much more likely to participate right. and, and stay with the study because the end, the result is meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's something that we are trying, we are seeing a lot more that in, involving patients early give you those what to measure mm -hmm. uh, for patient benefit uh, in a way that is meaningful to our patients and that increases mm -hmm. uh, their participation. And then when the treatment comes to market, mm -hmm. it increases their, you know, um, uh, uh, their sort of uh, their their ability to just take the medicine or mm. or stay on the medicine, mm. and so that's those are the things that we very find interesting, are. very interesting. Uh, my next question is that: Do you, when you engage with patients, do you have any challenges um, or barriers when it comes to you know either understanding of medical knowledge or concerns about confidentiality of patients? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I actually haven't faced that yet. I okay. can see that a lot of people, you know, feel that that's a big challenge. Mm -hmm. um, in my experience, when I, I talk to patients, uh, they are knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. uh, they are thoughtful. You know, they're willing to do things that may be difficult for them because they understand it's important for science. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, almost always patients give a lot of themselves mm -hmm. to a study. Um, what we can do different uh, is to, you know, they all, the, the biggest request they have is I want to learn from what you learned from me. I want right. something back in terms of knowledge. And I think mm -hmm. that's an area that has, uh, is, you know, that needs to be figured out a little bit more. How do we give back information and how mm -hmm. do we give back information with the privacy concerns and other compliance concerns that, that exist uh, but so that the patients feel meaningfully engaged that what I'm doing is giving something. Mm -hmm. um, there are also uh, ways that you can you can train these patients if there's a new patient and they want to participate um, to learn the basics of you know clinical study design, you know how things happen, how mm -hmm. regulatory processes happen, how to engage with the FDA and things like that. But in my experience personally, I've never found that to be as much of a challenge. Mm -hmm. Patients are typically eager to learn, mm -hmm. and most of the patients I work with are sick uh, and you know have have uh, personal challenges. But they are extremely generous with their time, um, attention, and energy mm -hmm. uh, that they give to the study. So mm -hmm. I I have not found that to be that Wonderful. much of a challenge. Wonderful. So time for two more questions. Yeah, sure. My next question, and we have a very large viewership in the US also. Sure. And I'm sure a lot of people will listen to everything you sped, said specifically about patient engagement. So if people are interested in reaching mm -hmm. out to FNIH uh, to get involved in your programs, how can they do that? So um, right now, the way, because the programs that we build are coming from all walks of life, right? We are, yeah. we are getting project ideas from different types of scientific groups. Mm -hmm. um, and we we don't work in sort of discovery efforts. That's really in the domain of NIH. Mm -hmm. We work in, this is a discovery that can be translated into something, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, most of the people who talk to us from a science perspective mm -hmm. are scientists of different kinds, scientists, doctors, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
when we build a program, we we then go and say, uh, you know, when we say, for example, we are working on a large program on ALS, which mm-hmm. is a, a you know a neurodegenerative disease. We have as soon as we had the idea that this was going to be a project, we went out and talked mm-hmm. to several um, groups that are you know patients and advocacy groups that are living with ALS. So that's the way that we engage patient populations. Now, mm-hmm. FNIH by itself does not have a way to channel specific patient requests into, mm-hmm. into disease into disease discoveries. Okay. Although, except for when patients are also working on disease areas, we have lots of those as well. And they say, mm-hmm. you know what? There's a cool idea for science. Would you like to work on this? Those are absolutely always welcome, and we have mm. a, a website that people can reach out to with different ideas. But but typically, what I tend to do is when a disease area has been worked on, we go out and we recruit from known advocacy groups or known patient groups that are um, that work on that area mm. to join us uh, mm. in team. Um, so that's how that's how we do it. But if anybody is interested to learn all the programs that are currently ongoing at the foundation, mm. we welcome you to take a look at what programs we're working on. And if that resonates with the patient group or they feel like there is something they can contribute mm. to, to moving the science forward, they should certainly reach out to us uh, and, and we will be happy to. Wonderful. To Wonderful. And my last question to you, um, and this is for the many, many people who will listen to our conversation. Based on all the great work that you are doing in the foundation, <laughs> can you share any specific example where patient uh, involvement has actually in, resulted in uh, a success uh, of a potential outcome? So, you know, it's such a, such a good question. You know, we are, um, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to give this to you in a way that will make sense. So, you know, we, um, we, and I didn't ever address your maternal health question, so maybe I can mm-hmm. tie those two things okay. together. Mm-hmm. So we are working on a project on uh, on preeclampsia, which is a pregnancy-associated hypertension. So mm-hmm. you know, you're, but but it's very dangerous. It kills more women, uh, pregnant women in uh, in developed countries than any mm-hmm. other uh, disease, and, mm-hmm. and it also is disproportionately impacts black and, and brown women. Mm-hmm. Um, very prevalent in India as well. Mm-hmm. Um, no no uh, no real drugs or therapies for mm-hmm. this. We were working on a project where we could actually bring you know early detection mm-hmm. uh, so that you can do something about it. Um, and uh, one of the patient advocates build this beautiful study and one of the patient advocates says, you know, you're studying this one outcome that, you know, a woman survives or is able to carry her pregnancy for X more weeks. Mm-hmm. But nobody is really asking the question that the patient would ask, which is what happens to my baby? You know, mm-hmm. what will happen to the and so this is a question that again we were a lot of people working on this program mm-hmm. um with lots of, you know, empathy and interest. Mm-hmm. But we never really thought about what an actual patient would think in the moment and the mm. questions that would be most meaningful mm. to them. So because of that input, we adapted our study and changed it to include that as a secondary um, outcome, as we mm. call it, right? Like this is, you know, what happens to the baby when a, when a, when a mom is able to carry the pregnancy for X more weeks mm. as a result of a treatment. Wow. And uh, wow. I think that would be immediately obvious as I say it, but somehow when you're actually in the in the middle of designing a, a study, you don't think about immediately obvious questions, and 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 sometimes they're very profound, and mm. uh, and you learn every day uh, how to make it better. 
Well said. What a great response. And Tanya, on that note, uh, thank you so much for speaking to me about your own amazing journey. Thank you for speaking to me about the incredible work FNIH is doing, uh, you know, in the area of developing partnerships for metabolic diseases. Thank you also for speaking to me about how um, you are engaging patients mm -hmm. to be able to give their mm -hmm. feedback for treatments that they will get. Thank you again yeah. for speaking to me and good luck. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.